This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today, and just before the news headlines at half past 12 today, the Federal Agriculture Minister has dismissed the findings of a survey that's been done by the National Farmers Federation, which shows the majority of farmers think labour is harming agriculture. We'll hear from the Minister shortly. It also looks like there's been a spike in illegal fishing vessels operating off Western Australia's north coast over the recent months. We'll look at that in some detail uh, just before news headlines and across to the Bureau at half past 12 today. Five past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC, right around Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. First up today, Australia's largest sheep exporter, Retwa, is expecting the approval process to export sheep to Saudi Arabia to be completed any day now, which means the first shipment of WA sheep to Saudi could take place before the end of the year. Now, Retwa isn't the only company that recognises the potential to recommence sheep exports to Saudi. In fact, all sheep exporters have made applications to the Federal Department of Agriculture, which is the industry regulator. Before the exporters can start preparing a shipment of sheep to Saudi, they need the various facilities within the Saudi supply chain to be approved under SCAS the Exporter Supply Chain Assurance System. As WA Farmers Livestock President Jeff Pearson was telling you yesterday, opening the Saudi market is the relief valve WA's sheep industry is looking for. We've got a, a looming Saudi market, which has been you know, three years in the making to try and get something happening, which could take up to 400,000 sheep. Does that solve our problem in Western Australia? Yes, it does. Between now and in six months or eight months' time, we shift you know, up to half a million sheep out of, the, out of the country, out of the state, not only Western Australia, but on the East Coast. It solves everybody's problem. And it takes an animal worth nothing to an animal worth something. So what does that do for the economy? You times half a million by $45 a head for shipping weather. It puts money back into the system without having a, a depleted industry that it's heading towards. State Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis says she's prepared to lobby for the opening of the Saudi market. I was probably disappointed to read media reports that that indicate that perhaps there's been uh, some sort of blockage in getting approvals through for new live export markets. My view is as long as this trade remains legal, which we know it will for some years to come, as long as this trade is legal, we should be exploring all market opportunities. And if there is a market out there that wants to buy our sheep, our live sheep, then I absolutely want that market to open up. Now, I have contacted Murray Watt this morning on the back of that media report. I haven't had a response back from him yet. He's, he's I know he's um, on the road, so I expect to speak to him soon about this matter. Eight past 12 here on the Country Hour. Mark Harvey Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, how likely is it that the industry will see a shipment of sheep to Saudi before the end of the year? Oh, look, Belinda, I I think it's definitely possible. Uh, There are processes that are still underway with the department uh, and obviously individual exporters have to put in their own applications for SCAS supply chains and all those sort of things. So, But uh, we definitely know that Saudi are very keen 
uh, and they are looking for livestock, and they're looking for large volumes of livestock. So I think it's entirely possible we'll see it before the end of the year for sure. And how long have these applications for approval been in with the regulator? And do you think it's a you know a pretty standard amount of time that's going by before the approval comes through? Oh, look, there's different levels of approval that are, are happening, Belinda. I suppose the one thing to uh, remember is that Saudi hasn't been in the market for about 12 years. And that's because they didn't support SCAS. Uh, when that came in, in 2012. So it is a new market in that sense where we have to make sure that the supply chains and everything are all set up. So that's what the individual exporters are doing. I'd like to think it could happen a little bit more quickly, I must admit. Uh, it is does seem to be taking its time, but it is more complex than, say, your average market. But then the other thing that comes into play is we, we have had a little bit of frustration over the years where Saudi's shown some interest for quite some time because what happens when you set up a new market is you establish a health protocol with that country. It's a bilateral agreement that allows you to trade livestock. And we had that established a number of years ago, but we, we did feel that there was a little bit of regulatory overreach in terms of the additional conditions that the department was looking to put on there because they're concerned about Saudi sensitivity to scabby mouth. And of course, we had the Cormo Express a number of years ago, but we'd put the argument, that's a long time ago, it's a new market, they want to adopt our system, so let's go for it. So there are some regulations that need to be ticked off here in Australia, but also at the other end, in the Saudi market. I mean, are they open to SCAS now? Is that the, the sort of signals you're getting? That's right. And this has been a years-long process, Belinda. Uh, and it's about their food security. And I think when you look at the, the trade dynamics, which is a message we've been trying to uh, articulate for a number of, uh, a significant amount of time now for other Middle Eastern markets too, they like Australian sheep. We're reliable. We're a good trader. And that's what's brought them around. And there's been significant work by the industry over the last 10 years to give the assurance around the health protocol, to explain how SCAS works and, you know, I understand that the, the first SCAS supply chain is pretty much ready to go. So there's been significant work and it's it, it's a shame it comes in the context of uh, the government proposing to phase the industry out. But what this demonstrates, this is not a declining industry and we've got a burgeoning market ready to go uh, and we're quite excited about it, but we've just got to get it over the line. But with that policy you know, looming in the background, I guess, the federal government policy to phase out the trade and not in this term of government, but sometime down the track. I mean, what sort of appetite is there from the the regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, to make this happen, to open a new market like this? It makes it very complex. And, and the reason I make that point is you've got countries that are entering into the market in spite of that. That's not a declining trade. And, you know, there was an article in the paper yesterday, the Financial Review, about the fact that the department was talking about not continuing to negotiate protocols with other potential new markets. And this was before the consultation occurred with the, uh, with the panel. So, look, I think it's a very difficult accusation to make, but I would definitely like to see things be moving a lot more quickly. Uh, and I think if you look at the context at the moment with the way sheep prices are and the conditions in Western Australia, I mean, it's very concerning for a number of people 
these are the opportunities that the government needs to support and, and we'd be absolutely endorsing them to pursue those as much as possible. And we had the State Agriculture Minister, Jackie Jarvis, on the Country Hour yesterday uh, responding to calls to you know, try and fast-track this Saudi market, get it up and running as soon as possible, just as a, a relief valve, basically, for the dry conditions here in Western Australia and the number of sheep that are still on farms. And she uh, said that she would be happy to lobby her federal counterparts to see if she can make any difference to that process and maybe speed things along a little bit. Does that support help in the cause to open this market and get the first shipment out of WA by the end of the year? Well, all support's very welcome, Belinda. I acknowledge that the department does have to work through its processes, but what I think we can do is make sure it's a priority. And I think when you've got a, a state government minister asking that for this to be a priority for the in the best interests of their constituents. I think that highlights how important it is. And I think that should guide the focus that the department applies to getting these final things over the line so the market can get underway. So what's your feeling here? Is this going to happen before the end of the year? I, I think it can. I think it can. I mean, it's it's not my role, I guess, Belinda, to know the commercial intricacies. So I don't want to... Uh, uh, put my foot in it by saying that something's going to happen commercially that's uh, not in my ballywick. But if you look at everything uh, from a very pragmatic perspective, um, the processes that are underway, the things I know the exporters are doing to get those supply chains set up, I can't see why we don't have a shipment before the end of the year. Is it risky, though, at the other end, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, this big shipment sails out, uh, if it all comes off and, you know, any trouble at the other end? I mean, there is that risk factor, isn't it? No more than any other market. And I need to emphasise as well the years of work that have gone into this. Uh, so, you know, they're not taking it lightly that they're taking on SCAS, and it's not an overnight decision. It's years of work. And I know it's all coming to the fore now, but the industry has been chipping away at this for the last 10 years. So it's ready to go. Uh, and I think, I think we'll see a very positive outcome when that shipment goes. Good to talk to you, Mark. Thank you. No, my pleasure, Belinda. Thank you. Mark Harvey Sutton, he is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. And speaking of sheep, the number of lambs that are being slaughtered across Australia is at near record levels, with 475,000 slaughtered last week. WA representing 12% of that figure. Meat and Livestock Australia says it's the highest national lamb slaughter since December 2016, when the figure was 489,000 head. Steve Bignall is Market Information Manager for MLA. Steve, just go over those figures again, just from last week. So last week, uh, the NLRS uh, voluntary weekly slaughter showed that national lamb slaughter for last week was 475,000, which is an incredibly high uh, number. Can you put it into some sort of historical perspective for us then, Steve? I mean, let's start with a comparison to the previous year. If the last week of September this year, 475,000 lambs were slaughtered in Australia... What was the comparison to the last week in September of last year? So last year it was 322,000 
lamb slaughtered for the same period or for the same week. So that's week 39 of the year. And so that means that this year for this comparing week 39 this year with week 39 last year, uh, we killed an extra 150,000 lambs. All right. And then, I mean, how many times do we slaughter over that sort of 400,000 mark or over 450,000 mark? So last year, there were only 10 weeks where we processed more than 400,000 lambs nationally. This year, pretty much since week 17 through to now, bar three weeks, we have been operating above that 400,000 threshold. So uh, we've been operating at those sort of elevated levels for the last five months. And what is the highest ever national lamb slaughter? So the highest ever was achieved in December 2016, and it was 489,000. So that's good to get that perspective. What is it saying if, you know, the last week of September this year, 475,000 lambs were slaughtered in Australia? It does paint a picture of what's going on in this country at the moment. I think it does. It, it shows that though that supply of lamb is definitely uh, hitting the market. And, and one thing to put, that puts it in context is that last year was a year of record lamb production and we're operating 150,000 ahead of that week on week, like when we compare this week to the same week last year. So it just, I think, does highlight how much lamb supply there is. Were you surprised by the figure? Uh, yeah, I was. And I, I suppose we talked about the 2016 record. This last week was the fifth highest lamb slaughter on record. Only four other weeks uh, had higher slaughter and it was the highest um, September figure on record. So the figure was probably you know, a bit of a surprise for you. You thought it was um, higher than it was going to be. Is that right? You thought it would be over 400,000? Over 400,000, we've been operating at that level, but I suppose hitting that, that record or that the highest level in seven years is, you know, we've hit it in, in September and we would have probably expected it to, to come in the back end of this year that, that we would be operating that 2016 level. But um, to hit it last week was we were in September was, was surprising. And you expect that trend to continue? It's going to be interesting. The next few weeks with a few public holidays uh, in different states could impact the slaughter and bring it back a little bit. But it has been operating sort of well above sort of 450 for the last three, four weeks. So so when those sort of public holidays wash out of the system and, and don't impact our slaughter numbers, we expect that it will probably operate around that 450,000 a week for at least the short term. Good to talk to you, Steve. Thank you so much. Thanks, Belinda. Steve Bignall, he's the Market Information Manager for Meat and Livestock Australia, talking about the number of lambs being slaughtered across Australia near record levels last week with 475,000 slaughtered just last week. And I did ask Steve about, you know, the impact that had on prices, but he said they pretty much remained stable. 20 past 12, and speaking of sheep prices, off to Katanning just before the news at one today. And there were some a good prices for the good lines. They sort of held and even gained marginally, while the plain sheep that were offered sold to minimal values and some as low as $1 a head. Tracy Kilner will go through the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at 1. 20 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. 
The Federal Agriculture Minister has dismissed the findings of a survey done by the National Farmers Federation, which shows the majority of farmers think labour is harming agriculture. 1,600 farmers took part in the survey. Just over 54% of respondents thought current government policies are harming agriculture, while about 31% thought the government is doing a good job for farmers. Murray Watt argues the current federal government is supportive of farmers. Oh, look, I'm I'm certainly conscious that there are some policies uh, that farm groups and, and individual farmers aren't completely thrilled about. But I think if you look at it in totality, uh, under the Albanese government, there's been a range of significant improvements made that benefit farmers each and every day. We've obviously really strengthened our biosecurity protections. Uh, I'm actually speaking to you from Hobart Airport, where I've just inspected their biosecurity arrangements. And of course, you know, touch wood, we've managed to keep out foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease when a lot of people thought it was inevitable they'd come here. But, you know, also we've, we've taken real action to try to deliver uh, on the workforce needs of agriculture. It's not fixed entirely, but we've got more Pacific Island workers than we've ever had in Australia before. We've opened up new trade deals with a range of other countries to export more product. Uh, and of course, we're taking action on sustainability issues too. You know, I know that there's a lot of angst in particular in the livestock community at the moment about prices falling, and that is having a real impact on farmers. Uh, but unfortunately, as MLA and Rabobank and a number of others have confirmed, really what we're seeing is the market in operation. And we've got a massive oversupply, uh, particularly of sheep, but also cattle at the moment as well, which is impacting on prices. Uh, but look, we, we work as So do you think we, this as, survey is more about the politics of the farmers that are being asked? Or do, do you actually take responsibility for some of those decisions that may be adversely affecting the sector? Oh, look, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to accuse people of engaging in politics. I mean, people are obviously entitled to their views. But I guess what I'm saying is that if you look at the full picture of what's happening with agriculture, there's a range of government actions that have occurred since we came to office that have been for the benefit of the farm sector. And we want to continue that. Uh, I don't think everyone's going to agree all the time on everything. Uh, but as I say, when we look at it on the whole... I think that there's a lot of really positive things happening for the sector. And I know you've made some comments on this before, but but in terms of reiterating, a number of agricultural groups have written to you asking you to scrap the live export phase out, saying that is going to adversely affect an industry that's going through a downturn in, in particular at the moment. Given the state of the sheep industry at the moment, is it something you would consider? No, look, we've been very clear from the beginning that we intend to honour our election commitment. This is obviously something that we went to two elections in a row committing to do, but I've also committed to do it in an orderly, considered manner. Um, So there are some groups who want us to phase out this trade immediately, and we've said that won't happen. And very soon I'll be receiving advice from the panel about how we can do it. Um, But I think, you know, there are still real opportunities for the sheep industry as well, particularly on short processing. And we see a really bright future for the sheep industry uh, as we make these changes Agriculture Minister Murray Watt with Warwick Long. 24 past 12 and uh, shortly an update from the newsroom for you and then we'll check weather conditions right around Western Australia when we cross to the Bureau of Meteorology. First up, though, it looks like there's been a spike in illegal fishing vessels operating off Western Australia's north coast in recent months. The Australian Fishing Management Authority says since June number of boats being seized or turned back to Indonesia has doubled each month. So, for example, back in June, only six illegal fishing boats had their fishing equipment and catch seized by Australian authorities. 
But last month, 42 vessels were sent home empty. Australian Border Force says it continues to target illegal foreign fishing in Australian waters to protect marine resources and says illegal fishing inside the Australian fishing zone will not be tolerated. Federal Shadow Minister for Fisheries and Liberal Senator John O'Dunniam says he'll be trying to find out if more can be done to protect our waters. Well, obviously it's not welcome news. Uh, What I am surprised about is that the government haven't made a big deal about it because it is something we need to stamp out and clamp down on. The fact that these vessels are getting so close to the mainland and as you've just outlined, um, that's where they're being apprehended, uh, is something that we should all be concerned about. And so the role of the Commonwealth Government is to not only protect our borders and uh, and ensure that we don't have these illegal incursions, including from um, illegal overseas fishing fleets, but also work in uh, origination ports to deter would-be illegal fishers from journeying out to do what they're doing. Um, that's an important part of what they're doing. And the fact that we are getting these vessels turning up, uh, and that is not a small number, is very concerning. How many of them are out there that we don't know about pillaging our fisheries? We need to get onto it and we need to do it as a matter of urgency. What sort of deterrence do you think should be put in place Well, I think it's important for us to have an education campaign in place so people who might think it's a a low-risk proposition to hop on these rickety boats and uh, sail across the seas to come and take fish from our waters, uh, that there are penalties in place. They could find themselves on the wrong side of the law, facing monetary monetary and other penalties, uh, and on that basis, they should not attempt to do it. Uh, They can lose a lot um, in the process of engaging in these illegal activities. Uh, We also need to ensure that we have uh, as much surveillance as possible on hand to monitor our uh, exclusive economic zones out in the uh, wide swathes of ocean that we manage. Uh, Those sorts of measures are what should be in place. Um, And I know that the Australian Fisheries Management Authority have some very good personnel who operate in this space. I just want to make sure the government is supporting them in the role that they do because we all benefit at the end of the day. Do you think that there is enough border surveillance, enough resources to monitor such an isolated area? Uh, I think it is uh, always something that we need to maintain a close eye on. Um, If there is a need, I would rely on the experts in the field to tell me what resources they need. And certainly at Senate Estimates, I'll be engaging with the relevant authorities to see that they are resourced enough to be able to do the job that they've got to do. Because as you point out, this is a huge body of isolated water uh, that we need to manage, a huge swathe of coastline that needs protection. Um, And so, you know, if they need more resources, then we need to be allocating resources to it. And that's what I'll be asking the government to do, is to make sure that AFMA and the Australian Border Force have the resources at their disposal to be able to go and protect our borders, uh, to ensure that we don't have illegal incursions and we don't have illegal and unregulated fishing occurring in our exclusive economic zone. Senator John O'Dunniam is the Shadow Fisheries Minister and was Assistant Minister for Fisheries when the Liberal Party was in government. He was speaking to Vanessa Mills. 28 past 12. Did you know young farmers are seven times more likely to suffer hearing loss compared to people the same age working in another profession? Hearing Australia's Karen Hirschhausen says the next generation really needs to be aware of this statistic because farmers also suffer varying degrees of hearing impairment. 
around 65% of farmers aged between 15 and 75 may have some degree of hearing loss. And almost 50% of farmers report tinnitus, which is a, a type of ringing in your ears. Very irritating and, and quite concerning. Is there any idea why amongst that cohort it is particularly high? Is it just simply because of the types of machinery that they're working with? Yes, I believe so. I think it's the type of work. Um, agricultural workers, manufacturing um, as well is obviously higher risk because of the, the level of the noise of the equipment that's often being used. So we really just want to encourage people to take care of their hearing and protect their hearing by using earmuffs or earplugs where where they can. I mean, research does indicate that that men are a little bit less likely to talk to their GP about different things or actually go to the doctor uh, in the first place. So we are encouraging everybody, if they notice any changes to their hearing or they're concerned about their hearing, whether you're male or female, uh, to talk to an audiologist or to talk to their GP about it. As with anything, better to get onto it early because some of this damage might not be able to be reversed? Correct, yeah. So we want to make sure that any damage there we keep as stable as possible. We don't want to, to add to that damage and, and noise exposure is often cumulative. So the more exposure we've got to, to workplace noise, the worse our hearing can become over time. So if we can get onto it quickly, um, that's going to save our hearing in the long run. And, of course, prevention always better than cure, particularly with farmers or ag workers. They may not have a great choice in the types of machinery that they're working with. It is just going to be noisy. That's the nature of the bee. So what are the types of things they could be doing to reduce the impact of that? Yeah, they can certainly be trying to take um, some breaks during the day, giving their, um, their ears a little bit of rest time. So every hour or so, take a, a break where you're not in any noise for a period of time let your ears reset a little bit. Um, obviously using any hearing protection where you can and, and using it appropriately, so whether that's earplugs and making sure they're in your ears properly or whether it's um, earmuffs as well. Um, and I believe there are some equipment that can have buffers or um, noise sort of mufflers added to them as well that might help reduce some of that hazardous level of noise. Part of the reason we're talking about this is because it is Work Safety Month and this is a, certainly a workplace health and safety issue. Is it something that employers are a lot better at taking care of employees in this way these days? I've got a family member who's a retired mill worker. I remember him telling me the story about getting teased back in the day about wanting to wear earplugs. Uh, that certainly is a very different story when you go visit a timber mill these days. Are, are employers and workplaces getting better at this? Absolutely. Um, there's new legislation as well around um, protecting workers' ears against noise, but also having regular um, hearing checks if you are in a certain industry and exposed to a certain level of noise. And I think machinery is hopefully getting a little bit quieter as well. Karen Hirschhausen is a principal audiologist with Hearing Australia, and she was speaking to Selena Green. 28 to 1, Jonathan Beale is here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The Police Commissioner, Cole Blanche, has commended the work of his officers following a series of assaults on police in the Kimberley. Two officers were assaulted in Derby yesterday, a week after three others were hospitalised following an attack in Broome. Police say yesterday's incident began when a group of people drinking in a park became aggressive. Six people have been charged. A crackdown on dishonest migration agents and a funding boost for 
for the Home Affairs Department are among new initiatives being introduced in a bid to address systemic problems in Australia's visa system. The government has released a review into how the visa system was enabling the exploitation of vulnerable temporary migrants. The report found evidence of serious and systemic problems, including human trafficking and sexual slavery. And a national report into the responsiveness of coroner's courts to First Nations people who've lost loved ones to suicide has found the coronial process is alienating for Indigenous families. The research by the Centre for Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention involved interviews with coroners who called for greater cultural training for them and their staff. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. 27 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Now, let me know between now and the news at one, how do you learn new skills? Like, what do you rely on? Do you, uh, maybe you learn from your mum or dad, grandparents, maybe you check out what other farmers are doing, or maybe it's on social media. How do you do it? Learning your new skills. You don't get the old manual out anymore. Maybe you do. Let me know. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and let me know how, you know, if you've got some new equipment, um, learning some new skills. How do you go about it? What do you rely on? Let me know. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. And then just before the news at one, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. First though, let's check the weather and it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology with Caroline Crowe this afternoon. Caroline, what's the story around the Southwest Land Division this afternoon and for the rest of the week? What can you see? Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. So for this afternoon for the Southwest Land Division, uh, we've got a little bit of cloud through uh, the southwest, just a couple of odd showers just scraping along the south coast there in that onshore flow. Otherwise, the remainder of the Southwest Land Division is really looking mostly sunny and clear. The next, uh, leading into uh, the week or the end of the week, uh, we've got a, a real summer uh, pattern developing with a trough deepening down the west coast. Uh, so over the next couple of days, we're going to see a gradual increase in temperature, maximum temperature temperatures, even minimum temperatures uh, coming into sort of Friday, Saturday uh, and also those winds. So they're sort of tending a bit more, uh, well they're light at the moment but we'll gradually see them turn more easterly coming into Thursday and then more sort of around to that northeasterly on Friday and Saturday and also will become fresh and gusty as well uh, as that trough deepens. So temperature wise we're well above average um, and we're looking at sort of the peak along the west coast coming into Friday and even on Saturday uh, with the trough looking at 6 to 10 degrees above average. So on Friday a couple of uh, location or just labelling out a couple of locations. Mullower is looking at 36 degrees. Uh, Perth, we're heading for 34 degrees, looking at 31 around the Harvey area and down the south coast, sort of getting towards the mid 20s. Um, a bit further inland, Meriden, sort of around 33, so mid, low to mid 30s over the inland uh, southwest land division. And then we're still looking um, similar temperatures along the west coast on to into Saturday, but getting warmer through those. Uh, uh, inland parts of the Southwest Land Division. So 37 for Morrowa, 37 for Dalwallanew, Meriden, 36 degrees, getting to 34 around Narrigan and getting near 30 degrees right along uh, that southwest corner or the southwest coast uh, and even into the southwest corner, Manjmap, uh, Bridgetown, sort of looking into the low 30s. So quite warm temperatures, uh, warm uh, northeasterly winds coming into um, 
Friday and Saturday. The trough moves inland on Sunday. So we will see a gradual uh, decrease in those temperatures from the west coast from uh, Sunday. Uh, from a... Um, any precipitation, it's just going to be along the south coast again tomorrow morning, similar to what we've had uh, t today. And in regards to any sort of uh, those summery thunderstorms you can get on uh, the troughs, all of that uh, should remain uh, to the north of uh, the southwest land division uh, in the Gascoyne. So not expecting thunderstorms at this point down the trough uh, over the coming days, Bell. Now, we had really high temperatures just a, a couple of weeks back. They were quite, you know, high for the month of September. Are those temperatures you're talking about, are they well over what you get in October usually? Yeah, so uh, I think it was for Perth aerials last Wednesday, uh, we had the peak uh, in the trough, so it's looking similar. Um, looks as though it's going to be over a couple of days this time. So I know that the, uh, sort of that Perth area had it just for that one day before the trough moved inland, uh, but it looks like it's going to be a couple of days, particularly through the inland parts as it gradually heats up because um, you'll start getting those northeasterly winds um, pick up and then as the trough moves inland you still got the northeasterly winds in the inland parts um, and yeah Bell it is uh, definitely above average so like I said some places might get 10 to 12 degrees above average mm. for this time of the year. Okay all right well uh, not unusual in some northern parts of the state so let's have a look at the north and the east. Yeah, so it is uh, a little bit above average, uh, Bell, in the north. Um, probably a little bit more used to it, though. Uh, and and the extent of it being above average probably isn't as much as what it is along the west coast uh, with the trough, but still sort of looking at... Uh, four to six in some places, maybe getting eight degrees above average through part the west west parts of the Kimberley and into the Pilbara and into northern parts of the Gascoyne. So it is hot up north still, um, looking at getting sort of near uh, the high 30s inland parts of the Kimberley. Uh, Marble Bar is sort of looking around the high 30s and near 40s as well, coming into later in the week and um, sort of those northeastern parts, sorry, north... Uh, western parts of the Gascoyne, so uh, getting into the high 30s and near 40 as well. So Gascoyne Junction's got a forecast of around 39 degrees coming into the weekend as well. So pretty hot up north, uh, mostly sunny through the forecast period through northern and eastern parts, Bell. Um, there is, we are starting to see uh, some thunderstorms develop in the Kimberley. Uh, so today, uh, just along the north coastal fringe, uh, there's a chance of a thunderstorm extending a little bit further south um, coming into Thursday. And then coming into Friday, we're looking at sort of northern and western parts of the Kimberley uh, with uh, afternoon thunderstorms before easing uh, on Saturday and really just the northwestern fringe. Um, as I mentioned before, down the trough, we could see some thunderstorms develop through uh, inland parts of the Gascoyne on Friday. Those thunderstorms look as though they will be dry thunderstorms, so not expecting much rain out of it at all. Um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, Bell, it's fairly uh, quiet summer kind of pattern through a good part of the state uh, over the next uh, few days. Great. And uh, warnings? Uh, for the warnings, we've just got one marine wind warning and that's just uh, along the Midwest coast uh, for the, the Gascoyne area uh, over today and tomorrow. Great. Thank you for going through all of that. Appreciate it, Caroline. 20 to 1. Richard Hudson here now with a look at the rainfall. Yeah, and in the last 24 hours, there was nothing more than two mils recorded anywhere at all in WA 
Except Yangadine, which is about 100 kilometres east of Perth near Beverly, which had 128 mils. Fancy that. You'd think with everywhere else getting two, one or none, we might have got a phone call from one of the farmers out there, but... Anyway, speaking of computer glitches, you and I would well know at the ABC we've had a few little computer glitches in the last uh, few months. Imagine if we went to our computer technicians and just said, hey, we've got a problem with this, and if they just plonked an instruction manual down on our desk and said, here, read this. Well, it's almost at that stage. (laughs) I would be totally screwed, I can tell you. But maybe it is time we think of different ways to actually educate people, particularly on farms, and maybe consider using something like, and one one person texted in with this suggestion, something like YouTube videos. That's certainly the advice from a Tasmanian farmer who, as part of his Nuffield scholarship, He interviewed farmers from all over the world about how they find, train and then look after workers. Charles Downey runs sheep, Angus cattle, agroforestry and a vineyard on his family's property, which is just northwest of Hobart. And he reckons old-fashioned instruction manuals are close to useless for a lot of farm workers. The problem with the written word is that it works for some people but not others. And agriculture generally has a lower educational profile than the general population in Australia. So we're already starting from the wrong spot if we're trying to use a written manual to pass on information. So if you're not using the written word, what are you using? Everybody has a phone in their pocket now. I think video is definitely the way to go. Have you got examples from your farm where you've used videos to teach staff? Yeah, a really good one a few years ago. We popped the track off our 20-tonne excavator And to get it back on is a bit of a challenging exercise, which neither the operator on our place or myself had ever had any experience with. So we got up on a hill where we had phone reception and typed into YouTube how to put the track back on a 20-tonne excavator. And sure enough, there was a video of it. It took us a while, but a few hours later, we were back and running again. I know from growing up and working with different people in different fields, especially tradies, there's always a knack to something that you're doing with your hands. And you could read every manual in the book, but... There'll just be a little trick somewhere that they know, something that a shortcut will make something easier. And if you can see that, then it's much easier to get to the outcome that you're looking for. I suppose some people might say that's obvious and they're doing that sort of thing, but it's not necessarily rolled out in a formal sense, is it, with the way that we're educating people, either at schools or universities. Why did that become apparent to you? Was it part of your, your travels and your research for your Nuffield scholarship? Yeah, there were two conversations with people that really prompted me to think about how we do this. The first was with a UK scholar working for a farm software company. I was talking to her about how we design things to make them easy to use for people. She told me to read a book called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And that had a uh, chapter in it about the conceptual or the mental model, which is a representation in our mind of how something works. Then following from that, our host who organised our tours in Kansas, US, used to work in education and he said that education relies on teaching a graduated skill set with each level providing a foundation for the next and then he went out and said what do you do every day what's a level one skill in your business that you have to tell tell somebody else about I had to think about what is a level one skill in my business I'd actually never thought about it before what does day one look like for a new person and then I started thinking about our employees and how it all fits together. You've got a fair few employees. Do you want to just outline what sort of business you run in Tasmania? We do. We have a lot of employees, but I don't think anybody is there five days a week. A lot more uh, part-time or casual people, which seems to be a trend in the way people want to work. 
So we have merino sheep, about 15,000 of those, 350 cattle, some agroforestry, and more recently we planted a vineyard in 2017, which we're expanding this year. With all of those, there's a whole heap of skills, there's a whole heap of different forms of machinery you've either got to learn how to use or fix. Are you finding you're using different educational tools in, instead of just giving people a manual? Yeah, we're really conscious, depending on who the person we were talking to, about how to provide information, support information. I did have a go a couple of years ago trying to video myself doing some spraying in our vineyard, but when you're on a 2.4 metre row spacing <laughs> and you've got fans on both sides plus the gears and steering, it's really challenging to take an accurate video. You need a teenager with you. They're great at it. <laughs> uh, my seven-year-old, sorry, nine-year-old wants me to get a GoPro, so I reckon I'll have to invest in one of those. <laughs> My 16-year-old daughter could help you in doing selfies anyway. Just getting back to your employees, though, one thing I was intrigued with what you said today was not many of them actually have an agricultural background, do they? No. Of the sort of five or six people that are on the property generally, I think we only have one person from the traditional agricultural background who's worked on farms growing up and done a bit of landmarking and then come to work for us. The rest, we have a teacher someone in, from product management in Kmart, a tree faller, a girl in her first job straight out of school, and a chef. Was that by design, or they were just the best people you could find? No, a couple have sort of just fallen into it. Um, no, there's no design. There has been no design to it. It's been people have come to work for, for us, and we've recognised their skills and value different experiences and a different view. Did it intrigue you, though, to hear that some of the other Nuffield scholars have been looking at exactly that, trying to encourage people from outside agriculture to come in, not just into the, the basic jobs, but into any, any agricultural jobs? I think that the fact that there's a skills shortage in every industry is well understood, and good people are good people, regardless of which industry they work into. Um, if we want good people, we have to be attractive, and I think that's independent of industry. I mean, agriculture, of course, so we need them as well. How many people would you employ all up, whether it's full-time or part-time? There's five people generally on the property that sort of keep the wheels on, and then we'll have sort of up to 10 to 12 in our shearing team at various times of the year, and then the same again in our vineyard. Uh, pruning's the most labour-heavy time of the year. We have had contractors in the past to provide the labour for our vineyard and that brought up to 25 people in one hit to just try and get through the workload. And in all those jobs you've mentioned, are you able to get anything from your Nuffield Scholarship? You were taking a look at how there's so much effort going into new technology and you're keen to bring it back to the people, aren't you? Yeah, look, I'm a big fan of technology. In our sheep flock, the genetic evaluation tools available to us has meant that the last financial year our weather's cut over $80 head in fleece value. The year before that it was 100 I know that was a buoyant market at the time, but it's also related to the, the product that we're putting in front of people. And in sheep, that comes back to genetics. The technology is a fantastic tool, but it is just a tool, and people still have to be able to use it. We have to be very wary of products that may not be properly field-tested and well-supported and putting them to the hands of people who don't have the capacity to use them. And just finally, you mentioned how you went and chatted to some dairy farmers who have just found it so hard to find workers and keep workers that they've put in robotics. Was that just a, a success story where they now no longer need to have any employees? One particular dairy, uh, dairy in Canada that I visited, they had gone down that path. They really struggled to find staff and just said, it's too hard. It's put a robotic dairy in because the technology is available. 
actually spoke to an Irish scholar earlier in the year who'd gone the opposite path. He had a robotic dairy and pulled it out because the engineering cost of maintaining that was too high. And it was mission critical if it broke down. It was a real problem. Yeah. Whereas he had more success in getting staff and the staff could keep milking regardless of the robots. It's an interesting one, isn't it? To use the poultry industry, if you've got all your eggs in one basket, you're screwed, aren't you, if something goes wrong? Absolutely. The cost of supporting technology is much higher and you're paying a very highly skilled engineer to come and fix it as opposed to being able to have those skills in your own business to be able to fix things. Charles Downey, whose family farms at Gretna, about an hour's drive northwest of Hobart in southern Tasmania. He was talking to Richard Hudson at the recent national Nuffield Australia conference, which was held in Perth. 11 minutes to one. British Petroleum has just installed a 150 metre higher tower to monitor wind speed and solar activity on a property it recently bought just east of Mullawar in WA's Midwest. The property is called Daisy Downs and the tower will collect data for at least two years as part of BP's plans to capture wind and solar power for a proposed hydrogen export project. James Foley is the business developer with BP's hydrogen team. What we've put down on Daisy Downs uh, around three or four weeks ago, or commissioned three or four weeks ago, is a uh, met mast, um, which uh, has 10 sort of measurement um, devices on it, which is currently measuring the wind speed. What that helps us do is better understand the local wind patterns uh, around Daisy Downs and Mullawa to make sure that we can design our wind turbines and processing equipment to suit that um, profile. Met mask. Can you paint a picture for me? What does it look like? It's a uh, it's a 150 metre tall steel tower. Um, so it's it's quite high, and along it, it's got sort of a, a heap of guy wires which um, stem from the base to go up to keep it sturdy. Um, and yeah, like I said, beyond it, we've got all these sort of little uh, anemometers that they're called uh, to measure the wind speed at various locations. And is that 150 metres tall? Is that how high uh, wind turbines at Daisy Downs could potentially be? Yeah, quite potentially. We haven't made uh, any decisions yet on the exact design of the wind turbines. Um, we're in the what we're calling concept development stage, so early stage engineering. Uh, but yeah, by all means, these wind turbines could be as tall as 150 metres. Um, they can be quite big. What exactly will you be measuring? We've got the met mask, which I mentioned, which is wind speed, but we've also got uh, lidars um, out on the side as well. We've got three or four of them. What those are measuring, uh, in addition to wind speed, is also the solar irradiance, so how much power we think we could actually make from solar panels that are placed on the property. And how long do you have to take measurements for to, to give you a good idea? Because I'm sure that people at Pindar would say it's pretty windy. <laughs> yeah, we think it's windy, um, and that's based on uh, sort of data sets that we can uh, get online at the moment. Uh, but we need to measure the resource for two to three years at least, uh, because what that does, it, it helps us get an understanding of not only daily variations, but month to month um, as most people up here would be aware that the wind can change through the various seasons. Um, so we have to understand what that wind and that solar looks like in a, in a good windy year or a bad windy year. Um, and we think sort of at least two to three years is the period which we need to make sure we have an understanding of that to design our kit um, to be able to work with that natural resource. Two to three years to measure the resource, the wind and the solar, uh, in the Midwest. But you are also looking at uh, hoping to have Project Jerry up, I think I saw on your slide, by uh, 2032, was it, operational? Do you have to be assuming that the um, numbers are going to come through in the meantime? Yeah, we do. We do have to assume. Um 
based on the meteorological data that's out there today, we have a good conviction that it's good. And so what we do in the meantime is we base our engineering on that assumption that it's good, um, whilst obviously monitoring what we're picking up on site, that hopefully by the time comes on where we look to make an investment decision to execute the project, by that time, like I mentioned, we've got years of data so we won't be making any assumptions about what's out there. We'll know um, and to get the project up online, like you mentioned, in that early sort of 2030 period. Investment decision in the later part of this decade, what else goes into uh, a positive final investment decision? Yeah, so there are several or two or three gate movements, what we call gate movements, that need to happen before that. Final investment decision is where we make a commitment to spend all the money required to develop the project. So at that point, we do the final engineering and enter construction, and there's really not much turning back once you've made a final investment decision. Prior to that, there are uh, two or three engineering more milestone gates that we need to move through in the lead-up to that, so things that are called pre-feed and feed stages they will occur uh, pre-feed we're aiming for around the 24 25 which would then go into feed to take us to the late 2020s to make that final investment decision so there's a lot of engineering to go but also like we mentioned in the um the, the forum a lot of collaboration to go as well this won't be just a matter of bp needing to develop okage it will require various government agencies to be moving along um, at pace at the same time so we can develop in a coordinated approach Business developer with BP's hydrogen team, James Foley, with Lucinda Jose. Six to one. More than 1,000 people from around the world gathered in Darwin last week to discuss restoration of degraded landscapes. It was for the 10th World Conference on Ecological Restoration and around 80 nations were represented by people working in the field doing jobs like mine rehabilitation and weed control. Kingsley Dixon is Curtin University's Chair of the Society of Ecological Restoration and he thinks Australia was the perfect host for the event. Australia was chosen because we have big issues. You know, we've got almost 48% of continental Australia is having problems. It's degraded and we need to do better. How do we do it better is what this conference is about. And we've got probably some of the best brains in the business from around the world here in Darwin where we're trying to sort out the new ways forward so that in the next five years we see real change, real bush happening on large landscapes. And what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, your members are trying to overcome, especially here in Australia? So in Australia the biggest issues are firstly how do you control the weeds? I know that's getting down in the weeds but that really is the number one issue and you guys up here are doing amazing stuff with gamba grass and we took a UN and a G20 delegation out to look at your gamba grass control and they were all really impressed with that. But the bigger issue is how do you get the technology to make the changes? So uh, in parts of Australia in the 1960s, we used to clear a million acres a year. I now say to people, if only we could put back a 1,000 acres a year, we would be really in a great place. That's what our vision is through the society, that we can start doing on-demand very large landscapes, but it's real bush. It's not silent plantations of trees for carbon. Um, It is a mixture of all the things that matter to you, to me. If we can't restore a piece of land that you want to go and take the family and 
camping because it's so fabulous and the bird life is great and the wildflowers are good, then we haven't done it the right way. So it's about doing right way restoration and working with Indigenous communities to help us on that journey. There's representatives from mining companies here at this conference. Why is it so good to have the mining industry on board and, 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 and at this conference? Yeah, the mining industry are big users of the planet. They're also net degraders of the planet. So globally we have 101,000 square kilometres of the planet in active mines. And by 2037, half of those are to be fully rehabilitated but we haven't actually rehabilitated any of them. Globally, we have 50,000 square kilometres of legacy mines that have just been left abandoned around the world. And in Australia, we know the issue of legacy mines. Ranger mine here in uh, Kakadu is a big issue, and we can see the prices of that rehabilitation restoration going up. And again, had we got it right at the beginning and had all the knowledge, maybe that would be an easier path. We've got it with the Argyle Diamond Mine just across the border. Australia's first tier one mine to be closed where there are big issues over things from water quality, slope stability all the way through to you can't put the bush back on those areas. So wherever you turn in mining there are big issues. So it's great the mining company, uh, companies are here, they're learning and hopefully they will come back and keep returning until they do have the knowledge to make sure they do it right and do it right as quickly as possible. Kingsley Dixon, Chair of the Society for Ecological Restoration, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. Two to one to the markets and about 6,250 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Catanning Market today. That's up almost 2,000 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner, how was the yarding today? A better quality yarding saw prices maintain on last week's values with well-presented prime lines gaining marginally in most categories. The plain sheep once again sold to minimal values. The new season lamb yarding improved on quality, selling to $108, while a large yarding of mutton offered held firm and gained on the lighter weight, selling to $46 a head. Lightweight new season lamb sold to $41, trade weights returned $51 to $99, and the heavyweight new season lamb sold up to $108. Lightweight old season lamb sold to $30, trade weight old season made from $32 to $70, Store ewes made from $2 to $28. Medium weight ewes sold from $20 to $46 with a fleece. And the heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight sold to $42 a head. Ram lambs made from $30 to $70 depending on weight and quality. While the mature rams sold from $5 to $29 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you very much for that. On the world today, after the news at one o'clock, you're going to hear about serious bushfires in the far south coast of New South Wales that have burnt through some homes. So good to talk to you today. The news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.